when I was 11, um, I arrived at a new school uh, in India where I grew up with my parents. They just moved there to teach at a school for missionary children. Uh, and as I arrived, we heard the news. It wasn't great news. Two boys from my school, one in my year, who I hadn't yet met, uh, and one two years below, had been killed over the summer. Uh, they were killed alongside their father in northern India because they were preaching Jesus in a hostile Hindu part of the country. When a choice came for them between life and between honoring God, they chose to honor God at the age of 10 and 12. Looking at Daniel has reminded me of that as it did last week. I was in Oxford last week. Um, if you've been to Oxford, you'll know the head of St. Giles. You've got Martyr's Column, Martyr's Memorial, whatever you want to call it. Remembering those who died for their faith because they stood up for Jesus in the face of opposition. Those who chose God over death. And I've been thinking, we discussed this in small group, me and Jenny Sauker were sitting, have a chat. We were going, what would we have done if we were in that position? If I knew that standing firm for Christ would mean death. If all I needed to do was keep quiet, what would I do? Now, if you're anything like me or us at our small group, you may have thought it was a little bit of an abstract question. Uh, I and mean, maybe you've been looking at Daniel, you've been going, it's just a bit weird, it's a bit different. It's not something which I'd understand. I live in Bista. Most of us live around Bista. And practicing our religion, being Christians, is not illegal. We're in the minority in the world where being a Christian doesn't cause a lot of real pressure. By the way, we're really in the minority. Uh, so for us, it could be a bit abstract as we think about this. But I expect in the room this week, every single one of us, our families, ourselves, we've been faced with trials faced with struggles, faced with questions, faced with doubts. There'll be times this week when we doubted God's sovereignty. Is he really in charge? Times when we've wondered if it's worth being faithful to him. Times when our faith has been tested. Times when we've faced real temptation to follow something other than God. In Daniel's chapters in 1 to 6, we've seen this countless times, haven't we? Looked at right back in Daniel 1, how Daniel and his friends were exiles, lived as exiles, strangers in a foreign, godless land put under extreme pressure, sometimes the point of death. We've seen that, haven't we, in the furnace, uh, the lion's den. Under extreme pressure, what will they do in these situations? Will they trust God when life is going Pete Tong? Will they trust he's in control? Will they pray to him? Will they look to him? And we've seen in these situations, you may be sitting there going, ah, oh, Daniel, what a brave man. I don't think we've seen bravery. I don't think we've seen courage. I think we've seen faith. A trust that God is in control. A trust that God is good. Trusting in God that he's in charge even when we don't see it. And as we look at Daniel 7 now, I think we see a little bit about how Daniel could have faith. Faith that God is sovereign. Faith that God is good. We see in this chapter, as Daniel did, a bit like behind the curtains of history, a bit behind the scenes. It's a glorious vision. I sadly... Um, often find behind the scenes videos about films far more interesting than the films themselves. Um, I'll be watching a film dying to get on IMDb to find out why did they do that? How does that work? How does that happen? Um, and I think in Daniel 7 here, we're seeing a little bit behind the scenes, behind the scenes of history. And it's the last in our series in Daniel. This chapter is the hinge of the book. We have narrative stories, chapters one to six. And now we have Daniel 7, the first of four big visions. Four big visions in the rest of the book. They all have the same big point as we're going to look at later. But we've seen in Daniel 1-6 examples of what it looks like to stand firm in the face of extreme pressure. And in chapter 7, we see a little bit of what that looked like, what's going on in history above. You see, when under pressure, when life is hard, I think this vision is a real encouragement. 
You may have read it and gone, it's just confusing. It is quite confusing. It's quite random in places. But I think it's a real encouragement as you live as Christians in the world this week. And if you're not a believer here today, well, this vision helps, see how, helps you see how the world operates. How we believe the Bible teaches the world operates. It helps you see what the life of a Christian is like. A little bit showing you what's on the tin. Just being upfront and honest. This is what it's like. So we're going to dive in. We're going to see, um, I think, two kingdoms. Uh, two kingdoms, and then we're going to uh, dive at the end. We're going to wrap up the series as a whole and think, what difference does this all make to me? What difference does it all make to me? So the first one we're going to see is the kingdom of earth. And I think the first thing, just like I said, is to say this is weird. <laughs> if it's the first time here, or if you're really looking at the Old Testament, you're not alone in going, eh, as you just read that. <laughs> it's the first time in the book of Daniel that he gets the dream, and it's a shift in style, isn't it? So shifting style, it's what's often called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic, it just means unveiling. Uh, and like we said earlier, we're just looking behind the scenes, behind the curtain to see what's going on. It's often, this type of literature is written in a language full of symbolism uh, with a special focus on the end times. Uh, numbers mean things, what's going on with dreams mean things. Uh, and so Daniel has a vision. We saw it here, Daniel chapter two, in my vision at night, I looked and he went to the seaside. Did you see it? He went to the seaside, but don't have in your picture, in your head, a picture of ice cream and sandcastles. We see a raging swell, a swirling sea in chapter three. And out of that swell comes a series of four great beasts, fierce, deadly, scary beasts. These beasts represent nations. Uh, there's nothing odd about that, actually. Um, England's often, rep often represented in cartoons as a lion with the three lions. In the Cold War, Russia was a bear. Uh, America, often depicted as a, a balding eagle, um, which is maybe relevant with Donald Trump and his hair at the moment. And so we see four beasts and four kingdoms. And notice in verse two, as the vision starts, the beasts, they come from the sea, which itself was churned up by the winds of heavens. God is still in control even of this. Right at the start, God is the one who turns up, even at the start. So we see the first beast, maybe picture it in your head. Uh, we see a beast like a lion with wings like an eagle. It's weird. Uh, universally, the commentators see this as Babylon. We've been in Babylon, that's what we've been looking at. They see this as Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, described in the book of Jeremiah just like this. But there's some interesting things I want to pull out. Remember the dream of a tree in chapter 4? We saw how puffed up, how arrogant Nebuchadnezzar, he became like an animal. How this was representative of sin, our rebellion of God, living our own way makes us like beasts. And then at last he humbles himself and he's restored. Because when we submit to God in his rule, that's when we're most human. We see it here with the beast who, who has a human element to him, this first beast. Stood on two feet like a human being and in the mind of a human was given to it. Sin dehumanizes. Some of that, us know that so well in our own lives. How greed, how drunkenness, how arrogance, how lust, how pride can just take us over. Prevents us from being what we should be, what we want to be deep down. We become almost bestial. And for some, you're so very aware of the beast within you. It's taking you over, maybe stopping you being the human you should be. It's only when submitting to Jesus that we become or at least start to become the humans we're designed to be. This is also true of human authorities, of nations. This seems to be true of Nebuchadnezzar. You see not all authorities are beastly as each other. The first, at least, are the heart of a man. But when you look down, when we go into verse, uh, the, 
Beasts 2, 3, and 4, there's nothing discernibly human about them. Now, it's worth saying at this point, there's, I think there's a twofold danger with reading this type of literature, this type of apocalyptic symbolism literature. We can either be far too confident, reading boldly into every nuance, every type of word, trying to get graphs, calculators out, working exactly when this is going to happen and what and how. That's the first danger. We get far too confident. The second danger, we can just shrug our shoulders and go, well, that's weird. Give up, close the book and go home. And I'm going to try and avoid both dangers, but know that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to work out what is being said here without necessarily going, that's 100%. Well, here's exactly what this means in 45 years' time. Or this is exactly when we can predict Jesus is going to come back. Because with these first three beasts, there is debate about exactly who or what they represent. Rome, maybe Persia, the Medes. But I think the headline is, I don't think it really matters, because I think in some ways they're deliberately vague. If they were specifically labelled, then this vision, we could just say it was just history, just ancient history. It's not relevant to us today. But I think this vision is reminding us that beasts like this are seen in every age. This chapter itself, Daniel 7, it's referenced over 30 times in the book of Revelation at the end in a similar genre. And all these beasts represent human governments, secular organizations that oppose God. Worldly powers vary. At times, they really can vary. And we're fortunate in this country in recent centuries, I think we take it for granted that our government is more human than bestial. The UK has been profoundly influenced by the Christian gospel and scripture. The values that are by and large shared are not inherent to humanity. Look at other governments around the world. The values are deeply influenced for us now. And I think as our country becomes more secular, we can't take that for granted. That's not the trajectory we're going, as we're going to see in Daniel 7. But for brothers and sisters around the world, for other believers around the world, in many countries, this is not the same. As we look back at the last century, we only need to name some of the big players in history. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot countless more. Bestial. And it seems, as we look at the fourth beast, and we'll spend more time there than anywhere else, that a particularly evil manifestation of the beast is going to come as we near the end. We see an incredibly evil beast. We see that in uh, verses 7, verses 8, and then over in the interpretation we see it as well, 22 and 23. It's incredibly evil. Unlike the others, it has 10 horns. Horns indicate strength, and then we see a little tiny horn come through. It pushes others out of the way. It's creepy. It's got human eyes, spouts boastful words. I think it's a really creepy image. And no wonder in Daniel in verse 15, we saw him at the start and the end go, I was troubled in spirit. It's a pretty posh way of just saying what on earth is going on. You see the little horn in verse 25, it says, we'll speak against the most high and oppress his holy people. This horn, this, whatever this is, is going on, it's especially violent against God and his people. As we said, this is symbolism language, but it's symbolism language which indicates a reality. Some people have identified this rule of a fourth beast uh, as an especially evil rule in the second century, Antiochus Epiphanes. He persecuted Jews in the second century, and I think he's definitely referenced in chapter eight. There was definitely references to him here. But although he does have some characteristics, Epiphanes, of the little horn, we shouldn't identify purely with him. For we see this little horn there at the end of time, the time to come, being disposed and the end of the world arrives and the kingdom of God comes to reign. In the New Testament, I think we see this little horn identified in, by Paul to Thessalonians, talks about the man of lawlessness, 
John in 1 John 2 talks about the Antichrist. He says, as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. I think what you need to see here is that the beast will prowl in every generation. But at the last time, there'll be an especially evil version of this little horn. That's the kingdom of earth. And I think before we move on to the kingdom of God, we're bound to ask in some ways, where am I in this vision? How is this relevant to me? What is going on? Well, I think if we're honest, we can definitely see some of ourselves in a little horn. So often proud, so often angry and in hostility to God. The um, valet of Kaiser Wilhelm. He was a German leader before World War I. He said he was a man who always longed to be the center of attention. If he was a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If it was at the wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If he was a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. And I think there's something of that in all of us. We want the world to revolve around us. And at least in our hearts, I know I often do, we strut around like this, no time for anyone else or for God. And I think we see here, it's that attitude that dehumanizes us. The arrogance of that little horn leads us to the bestial governments we see self-seeking, God-hating. And so I think we can see ourselves in part in a little horn. But I think also, if you're Christians here today, I think we can see ourselves in the chewed ribs in the mouth of the bear. You see, the Bible is describing the common experience for Christians. We saw it in verses 24 and 25. Look down with me if you're there. It says, the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. There's an encouragement here. Because times, times, and half time, you'll see it in a little footnote. It basically means uh, three and a half years. It's half of seven. Seven's a symbolically perfect number. So it's basically saying that this suffering, this persecution is limited. That's the encouragement, but it is there. And I want to be faithful here. I was wrestling with this as I was looking at this. I want to be faithful and clear on what it would say on the tin of a Christian life. And if you're listening today, I'm sorry if you've been misled before, but there's no promise in the Christian life of utopia, utopia on earth, of every problem going away now. God does allow revolt against him. This world is a broken world. He does allow trials. We don't like them. Often we try and avoid them as if we could reverse the effects of the fall. But real Christianity, true Christianity, does not promise to avert suffering now. I was um, watching The Apprentice last week. It's my guilty pleasure. I'm getting more annoyed with watching it, but I still do for some reason. Um, I don't know if anyone watches it. They were trying to sell comics. Um, it was a little yeah. bit bizarre. Did you see it? Yeah, it was a bit bizarre. Trying to sell comics. And then one guy got absolutely pilloried because he stood up in front of a pitched Tesco's, I think, or was trying to sell a comic. And they said to him, um, what did you get from your market research? And you're basically at this point meant to go, from the market research, everybody said it was amazing, the best thing in the world, you need to buy my product. Well, he went, I thought it was quite good. He basically went, well, actually, uh, they said this and this was good, but they actually said there's an issue here. There's a problem here. There's a tweak we need to make here. And what I'm trying to do here is we look at Daniel 7. I think we're just seeing reality. We're just seeing reality. I'm trying to go to you, look, as in he got absolutely pilloried for telling the truth. But I think it's worth looking at the negative points as well as the positive points. I was sitting with a good friend of mine um, recently, recently become a Christian. And I was trying to explain this. He's had his fair share of suffering in his life. Proper persecution from friends and family, real sickness, real heartbreak. He knew pain far more than I could ever know. And I felt the most important thing as he starts out in the Christian life was to be real and to be honest with him. To say, we live in a broken world. God does not promise us bliss as a Christian now. This life is, is great. We do it with Christ now, but we're promised trials. Jesus in John 15 says, 
Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Christian life is not to come to Jesus and just get what you want. Uh, your wants, if they're like mine, are so often off the mark. They're not actually what would be best for us. And if you don't believe today, we think God has an even better plan for you than the one you've got planned out. Come and humble yourself before him. We're about to see him on the throne. I think I see my, my task today a little bit like a doctor has to break the bone and reset it. It's painful first, but let me plead with you today just to adjust your expectations. Read these chapters. Christian, you will have trials. I think it's unusual in our day and age now and this time for most of us where we can't really pinpoint often. I know I can't massively pinpoint in my life when I face real persecution, real anger at me for following Jesus. Maybe it's not unusual for, me, but it, uh, for you, but it is for me. I think it's very unusual in this country, as we look at countries around the world, if you look at the work of Open Doors, they're great. But there's a great cost to following Jesus. I think back to my friend, Philip, who I never knew, so I'd call him a friend, but who died before I'd even met him, burned in a Jeep. But I don't think it's unusual in this room to feel pain, to feel the weight of the broken world. We live in a fallen world, we can't eliminate persecution. We can't eliminate trials any more than a doctor could eliminate death. And that's why we say come to church. You may be sitting there going, well, this is not a great message for me to hear right now. So I say come to a Bible preaching, Christ exalting, loving church. Come together. We walk this life together. We pray together. We share life together. Our part is not to run away from the suffering and from the pain, but to run towards Christ who we look on the cross, who's felt pain himself and suffering himself, and we learn about God's love for us as we look to him. You see, for God in his kindness, he will allow us, if we do that, to be a living testimony to the watching world. As they watch on to the watching world, Christ is better than everything. Christ is better than anything else. It's better than having painless joints. It's better than having a perfect marriage. It's better than having the perfect child. Ultimately, if it comes to it, Christ is better than anything else in life. In Christ, we're not offered the safety of avoiding the trials, but in God preserving us through them. Now, let's look at the kingdom of heaven, because you may be sitting there going, how on earth do we do this? It seems quite bleak, ribs in a, in, a, in a mouth, that's what the image is. How do we do this? Well, let's look at the kingdom of heaven. The scene flicks in verse 9, you'll have seen it in verse 9, and we go from chaos, we go from wind, we go from swirling seas and prowling beasts, we go into a calm courtroom. Chairs are laid out and we see the first of two characters. Character number one we see, we see the ancient of days, calm and in control. This is God the Father. Remember we're looking behind the curtain, we're seeing into heaven, eternal, the ancient of days. A reminder that earthly powers that these beasts which are waging war, they come and go, but he is eternal. He's pure and righteous. We see that symbolized in his clothes, white and pure. And the little horn is no match for him. Look down at me, verse 26 and verse 27. It's a little bit like a pantomime. We see the arrogance. The little horn basically cries out, there is no God. And we want to scream, look behind you. Use your pesky little eyes to look behind you. And in one swift motion, it's a bit of an anticlimax. We see the beast destroyed forever. Judgment decked out on the beast. We're not looking in depth this time at chapters 8 to 12, but they all have the same punchline. God wins. God is in control. We've seen this throughout the book of Daniel, haven't we? God, the ancient of days, 
utterly consistent, utterly righteous, utterly pure and utterly calm. He knows what he's doing and he wins every single time. Then we see our second character as we look behind the scenes. We see the son of man. And notice this. This is a really famous passage. Notice this. He's a divine, divine figure. We see that in verse 13. We see him come on the clouds of heaven. But he's like a son of man, like a human, an utter contrast to the beasts that have come before him. He's perfectly human. We see, and we've looked at before in Genesis 1 and 2, how the world was meant to be. Humans ruling the world under the divine authority of God. In Genesis 3, we get the full rebellion against God and we become more bestial. The world is a mess. God then prophesies, though, that things will be all right, that he will redeem us. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, it's a, it's a linking chapter to this one. If you remember what Lang said last week, remember we saw the rock strike the statue and it came crashing down. And the rock, the little rock, becomes a mountain. This son of man is Jesus. It's a term regularly used by Jesus to describe himself. He is the son of man, the one who reigns in heaven. Jesus in Mark 8 says, after Peter declared he is the Christ, Jesus said the son of man must suffer and be killed and then rise again. You see, ultimately, the great battle is not between God and humans, but between God and Satan. And once Jesus died, once God himself came to earth, once he took the punishment for our rebellion, which was death, once he beat death through his resurrection, he neutered Satan. His only weapon, death, was taken away from him. And in verses 13 and 14, as we see the Son of Man enter, we're seeing Ascension Day. We're seeing the day Jesus returns to heaven from earth, having beaten death. It's a coronation. He's given all authority. He's given all power. He's worshipped by all nations and all tongues. Jesus is Lord. And the message today, if you're not a Christian, is there is only one king. It is Jesus, and we're called to submit to him. One day he's going to come back. He's going to put everything right. One day bestial will be gone forever. It has been defeated. But like in a war, the war's been won, but there are still battles ongoing. We know that in this room, don't we? There's still battles ongoing. The pattern of scripture has always been suffering and then glory for Jesus and us. And Christians in the vision, look down verse 27, with the saints. Did you notice in verse 27, how the kingdoms are handed over to the holy people of the Most High. This is us. We will share with Christ in his glory. What a vision that is. What an encouragement that is, whatever's going on now. We don't get this because we deserve it. We don't get it because we've earned it. We get it because of what Christ has done. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's a great picture. And I think the question comes, and it's kind of I've been wrestling with it for the last seven weeks. What on earth do we do with all this today? As we look back to Daniel thousands of years ago, what do we do with it today? What should we do when faced which we might well be, you never know, with the choice of martyrdom, of, of death, or we're more likely faced with the choice of compromise. To not live for God in faithfulness like Daniel, but to live for ourselves. What do we do when we're faced with temptation or to stand for Christ? When we uh, get challenged at work or at home to live the Christian life this week? Well, if only I had a vision of these hidden realities. When life is hard, and one thing that struck me more in the last 10 months of of being at this church, of trying to shepherd this church in some way, is that life is hard and the world is broken. We see that. When life is hard, the call here is to look to the throne, look behind the curtains of history and see the ancient of days. God alone is sovereign. How do we survive as exiles in a foreign land? 
We've seen how Daniel did it. It's not about our attitude to others. It's not about just getting our head down and getting on with it and digging in, keeping a low profile. No, we look to God. We saw Daniel last week as he was told he was going to be thrown to the lion's den. He got on his knees and he prayed. He looked to God. Stephen was the first martyr of the New Testament, the first person who died for following Jesus. Where did he get his strength from to stand up for what he believed? Well, in Acts 7, we see this. I encourage you to read the story. It's great. Acts 7, Stephen is about to be killed. It says, when the members of Sanhedrin, as the Jewish leaders, heard what he had to say, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. It's beastly, isn't it? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then he was killed. Same vision. Christian, look behind the curtain and see God ruling and Christ winning. Yes, we will suffer now in this life, but this is not a pessimistic message. Suffering, yes, but then glory. A perfect world with no more suffering, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain. A perfect world where Jesus will rule. And right now we've got Jesus with us, by his spirit with us now to help us. And he's been through the suffering. He's been through that pain. One day Christ will come and introduce a perfect world. The wise person doesn't live for the beast, but submits and lives for Jesus. We see a conclusion if you flick with me to Daniel 12. I encourage you to read 8 to 12 through. There's confusion in there. There's, there's old stuff in there, and I'm sure we'll preach on it in a few years' time as we, we really dive into it again properly. But in chapter 12, he finishes with a vision of what this will be like at the end times. Daniel says, there will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Be encouraged there. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Friend, if you haven't yet, be wise, submit to the king and trust him. And let's go to the people of Bicester and in God's sovereignty, proclaim this good news so that many are led to righteousness. Tough this week, tough this month, tough this year. If it's not, it will be at times. I'm sure it will be. That's the pattern of life at the moment. Look to the throne room. Look to God sitting on the throne in his sovereignty. Look to Jesus sitting in authority at his right, having beaten death, having loved you so much that he died and rose again. Look to him, knowing that he listens as we pray, listens as we live life with him. Let me pray. Then we're going to sing. Father, thank you for this vision. Thank you that you sit on the throne, the ancient of days, and you reign, and you have reigned for eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to earth. Thank you that you've defeated Satan, that you sit now at the right hand, that you will return. Father, help us this week to keep this vision firmly in mind when tempted to doubt you, tempted to turn from you. Help us each and every day to submit to you as our king. In your precious name. Amen.